this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. Well, Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Sunday, January 17th, 2021. Correct. Yes. So we here we are again. Just came in after some stiff pickleball competition and uh, we're ready to go. Yes, we're playing pickleball out on our basketball court. All the time. Yeah. It's nonstop pickleball here. Yeah. And we make up, we imagine the lines. We don't really have lines. <laughs> Oh, we don't imagine the lines. But, uh, yeah, some of us imagine them. <laughs> um, so you're having a rough time with your uh, football. Uh, let's not talk about that. We'll get to football in a minute. Let's start with what's really on our minds. Well, our first article today is not even something that you and I found. Nico found it. Mm-hmm. And uh, she says there's this crazy article about birds. And the title of the article, the headline is A National Sport Whose Stars Think They're Just Flirting. Hmm. Okay, so this is in Suriname. And uh, the big sport in Suriname is birdsong. People train birds to compete against each other. All kinds of people train them. Rich people, poor people, it's, uh, you know, of all political persuasions. And uh, it's an obsession. You can buy a bird for just a few bucks. <laughs> You're looking at me like the I really, The really successful birds yeah. can sell for $15,000 right. or something. As, as but, they should. But uh, you can buy a bird, you know, at the local bird market. Yeah. For not much money, you bring it up and train it. They feed them what, they, they special jet? diets. They put them near uh, attractive male or female partners to enhance, you know, the singing, mating songs. And they judge the someone judges the quality of the singing. Yes, and someone judges. They have competitions that last they hours. Birds judging this. The or competitions yeah. start very early in the morning because it's hot. Okay, and they go on for hours. <laughs> really. Um, there was. Where, a, where did you say this was? I don't think I've ever. Suriname. I never. So heard that, of that yes, you have. Um, it's it's on the north side of uh, South America. Okay. But they don't even consider themselves very South American. All mm-hmm. right. It started out as a Dutch colony. Yeah. All right. So the Dutch brought enslaved people and indentured laborers from around the world to work in. Sugar, coffee, banana plantations. So they have a very diverse uh, constituency. Mm-hmm. What would you call it? Population. The population. Yeah. Okay. Um, the The main ethnic groups are African, Indian, Chinese, and Indonesian. Okay. Okay. And um, it's a turbulent, crazy place since it's become independent. All right. The country has lived through civil war, political killings, economic crises. Mm -hmm. The previous president was convicted of murder while in office. Wow. Okay. The current vice president is convicted, is a convicted bank robber. Oh, my God. Facing drug charges abroad. So life is not easy in Suriname. But, 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 you know, this competition brings... All kinds of people together. Really? And politics, race, class, stay out of it. Um, so, I mean, it's interesting to learn all this about uh, their culture. You know, their language is Dutch. 
Uh-huh. So no wonder they don't relate much to the rest of South America. Their closest uh, links with another country? Yeah. Netherlands. Yeah. I mean, okay. they're, they're, that's pretty far away. There are players in the major leagues from Curacao, I think, who have a similar type uh, background. Yeah. So anyway, um, there, there was a flurry of excitement and interest in the competitions when Mike Tyson, yes, really, Mike Tyson, the fighter, came down yeah. with his bird. Really, he did not win. Hmm. Um. But uh, he brought well, some attention. I, I don't know how he The question is, that. who told him he didn't win? That's the question. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so well. it's a tradition. There's a, um, they interview uh, one man who said, uh, when my father gave me money to buy a bicycle, I went and bought a bird. He says, currently his family has about 200 songbirds at their homes and that he finds their constant peeps tweets, and chirrups. Relaxing. His wife, he said, doesn't quite agree. <laughs> so it's not for everyone. Yeah, I guess not. All right. Well, that's all right. Uh, well, that's kind of fascinating. Totally news to me. Shows uh, there's a big wide world out there. You don't know what's going on. Not interested in football. All right, but we Only are. Only birds. All right, so we held off football as much as we can. Look, I'm not going to get into the individual games. Everyone can watch the games if they're interested. But... There is a except my mother. Yeah, well, who can't find it on the TV. Well, she has trouble they, finding the podcast. Well, the, they they changed the provider, and okay. now she doesn't. Uh, Why am I understand? not surprised? The um, the article in the Times says you can't measure, you cannot measure heart, but NFL teams try. You gotta and, have heart, right? That's All a, you really need is heart. Sort of a baseball song, but in any event, my point is this. <laughs> my point is, how do you measure heart? What do they mean? They mean that when they draft players from college, they you know they see how much weight they can lift, uh, they see how fast they run, they see how high they jump. But, but that, can this be translated into action? Exactly right. And uh, Bill Belichick says um, that's the thing. It's hard to measure heart. It's a little bit more. There's a quote in the heart than the stopwatch. There's competitive speed and there's game speed, and they have a couple examples of interesting plays that folks made uh, in trying to uh, tackle someone who made an interception. And uh, some players kind of stand around and some players immediately go into high gear. They switch from offense to defense. They run these uh, the interceptor down and it makes a big difference in the game. That's one example. But there's sort of folks who are into the game, into the flow of the game and react immediately. And of course, being the NFL, they try to measure it. They put the microchips in pads. They show an example of the highest rated player on that basis last year who was drafted and turned out to be a big disappointment. So, um, uh, yeah, of course, the Eagles drafted him. So it's, it's a puzzle. But to me, it linked up with something else, which is an article in the book section about a book which we've seen a lot of coverage about. And frankly, I'm not terribly impressed by the book. It's a book called Pee Wee's Confessions of a Hockey Parent by someone named Rich Cohen. What he's writing about his son's uh, experience and his experience in terms of his son's playing uh, peewee hockey. And the article begins, it's by a person named Mark Rotella, with uh, a quote. And this is uh, Mark Rotella uh, quoting uh, the coach of his own son in peewee hockey, which he sets out as the standard for coaching. And uh, the standard of coaching, even in, in Rich Cohen's view also, that so many people don't live up to. And here's the quote. If the coach wants to win more than his or 
her team does, that's a problem. And the team is doomed to fail. That's the quote. Okay. Okay. That's completely wrong. All right? <laughs> Here's the deal based on years of coaching. Uh, what it should say, if the coach wants to win more than his or her team does, that's a problem with the coach. In other words, the coach has to dial it back. It, that's no, there's no failure involved. The coach's level of interest in winning should never exceed the kid's desire to win. He's not there to instill in the kid's desire to win. He's there to instill a love of competition. That's an entirely different thing. And that is exactly, in my mind, what's going on, what Bill Belichick would like to measure when he talks about Hart. There are some players at every level who are there to win. And some succeed. Some are big, some are fast, some skate well, whatever. But the best players often are those who love to compete. And What's when the, the difference? The difference is this. When you love to win and you have a setback, that means there's a chance of your winning are diminished. You miss a beat. You slow down. You have trouble recovering. You have trouble coming back. When you love to compete and there's a setback, it doesn't make any difference. You're there to compete. It, uh, if the odds are stacked against you, if now you're down two touchdowns, if there was an interception, you're just on to the next play. What you love is competing. You don't love winning. You love competing. And you're there to compete. That's a big difference. And that's what, in my mind, kids' sports are about. Kids like to compete, but they don't necessarily love to win. And that's fine. That's better than fine. And frankly, the kind of players that Belichick look for love to compete. When, I, when we grew up, and of course, things were less organized in the Stone Age when we grew up. And I was just right. playing basketball with my brothers and my friends you know, as a young person. We would play for hours every day after school with no adult around. First, when we came in, my mother would never ask us, how was it? We were playing. Mm -hmm. But if she did, how was it? We wouldn't say, well, we won three games and we lost two games. We'd say it was good or it wasn't good or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's all about competition. We, you know, we cared if we won or lost for about eight seconds. We just wanted to play the next game. And that's what you want to instill in kids. And that's what you want to do as a coach. You don't want to lose sight of that. You want to help the kids compete, not go crazy with winning or losing. But the, so the question is, how do you identify the love of competition? It's not a matter of identifying the love of competition. It's about instilling the love of competition. It's about fostering the love of competition. But, yeah, but, but in looking for heart. For Belichick? Yeah. You talk to people. You get a sense of people. You can tell. You can tell. You can see, but you can see it on the field. Okay, you can see those who are slow to react when something goes adverse. You can see those who put their heads down. You can see those who who are playing hard. You know, they all, they talk about this, and, and, and they don't phrase it the way I just framed it. But frankly, they'll say, and a lot of scouts will say, "Well, who's playing hard in the fourth quarter of a game? They're down three three touchdowns. Who's playing hard in the fourteenth game of the season when the team is three and eleven? All right, scouts look for that. Right. That's what they're looking for. I'll keep that in mind. Keep it in mind. Next, All right, go ahead. A little late in my career to be finding this out. But you, but you love to compete in uh, pickleball. That's what matters. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about television here. Um, and uh, we've watched a couple of shows recently. Uh, and uh, one is Lupin. Lupin. Right. And Lupin is a show which is kind of interesting, which is... Uh, a hit series, let's say, and I think it's a hit series. Uh, it stars a fellow named Omar Sy. He plays a modern gentleman thief in Paris. And the, the phrase gentleman thief is borrowed from the French detective series 
uh, Lupin, in which uh, Lupin is a uh, gentleman thief. He is, uh, as the Times describes him, Arsène Lupin is an elite member of the gang of delightful rogues known as Gentlemen Thieves, created by the French writer Maurice Leblanc in 1905. And he's so well known in France, apparently, that when they asked Omar Sy who he was interested in playing when his career was getting going, because he's a kind of good-looking, big physical guy with a certain magnetism, instead of saying James Bond, he said Lupin. But of course, he doesn't well, play... Well, he said, if I were British, I'd go for James Bond, right, but, but he's I'm not. French, he's... so I would like to play Lupin. But he's not playing Lupin, as you're going to explain. Why is he not playing Lupin? Well, he is uh, from Africa. Yeah. He's black. Yeah. Okay. Well, it doesn't sound... Well, but the, the, yeah, the, which wouldn't... You know, I mean, you could have a black Lupin. Right. But a far more interesting way of uh, framing it, as they did, yeah. is... You know, he's sort of a modern interpretation, sort of, right. you know, he's inspired by right. Lupin, uh, but he plays himself, you know, not himself on Marseille, but he, he plays, you know, a modern sort of gentleman thief uh, himself. And it's really... Uh, inspired by the Lupin books. The yeah. character himself is someone who has a youngster And they the mentioned in that article that he, you know, he's, he's kind of low tech. Yeah. I mean, he, did, he works out, figures out... Uh, a lot of his schemes right. uh, using computer, but he's really not about violence. No, and uh, I mean he's incredibly strong and incredibly quick, and you know, uh, savvy, and all of this. But really, his best um, attribute is, I guess, being an, a shapeshifter. Yeah, well, you know, he, he claims a, being, he claims because he's black, frankly, and because he's often assuming the role of a character with very little money that people don't see him. That he's people invisible. don't see him or, you know, and uh, he can also take people by surprise yeah. by being black and being in, you know, certain situations. Right. Uh, so it's it's kind of a combination. Anyway. He, he's a great distractor. Right. Anyway, it's a fun show. Right. Subtitles, yes. Yeah. Okay. Although you forget about the subtitles, I think. Oh, sure. At a certain point, I'm feeling like, oh, yes, that high school French really is coming in handy. <laughs> But of course, I'm just reading the subtitles without acknowledging it. Well, I don't have high school friends, but that's but, on, but on I Netflix. But I think it's yeah. uh, it, it's got um, uh, you know the glamorous aspects of being in Paris. It's got a wonderful sort of modern family story. Mm-hmm. He's trying to connect with his estranged son, right. um, and, and so it's it's it looks like a winner, yeah. and apparently it is. Yeah, apparently people are watching. He's an yeah. interesting character. The other thing that we watched for a few minutes, and you saw less of this than I did, was WandaVision, much promoted by uh, Disney+. Plus. Um, so WandaVision, it just, it's an interesting concept, and I kind of liked it, but uh, I think I, I would give up on it. And let me explain. Uh, it's based on two Marvel characters. Okay, Marvel characters are superheroes, right? Uh, one, the telekinetic Wanda Maximoff, who is played by Elizabeth Olsen, and the artificial artificially intelligent uh, sort of robot, if you will, or android, Vision, played by Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany, we saw in Master and Commander and Beautiful artificially Mind. Artificially intelligent. Th- that's what they say. I kind of feel like that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so they're real and more characters. But here's, but here's the trick. They take these two characters who in previous movies have been, you know, fighting all kinds of strange flying villains and, you know, helping Captain America and doing what they do. In and, skimpy costumes. Yes, in skimpy costumes. Thanks for pointing that out. And and they put him uh, in uh, sitcoms. In other words, they're played as sitcom characters. And they do it so completely that they have 
for the first half-hour segment, their husband and wife in a 1950s sitcom. Black and white. Yeah. And it's really set up. It's done extremely well, extremely detailed. It plays, it looks like an I Love Lucy episode. And the jokes are like I Love Lucy. And they're kind of, they're funny. They're not that funny. And there's a laugh yeah, track. Not and they that kind funny. Of, they kind of, I agree. But it's amazing that they're able to do it and that the characters translate. You know, it's a fun trick. All right. But I didn't find it so well, engaging. Uh, well, and let me and just to continue what they do. And then the next episode is not 50s, it's 60s. So it's the Dick Van Dyke show, really, or it's Bewitched. And you see a little different camera angle, a little different set, and the character is a little more developed. And then it's 70s, and now it becomes color. Now, at a certain point, what's going to happen is there's going to be some dramatic development that's going to take them into some conflict in the Marvel Universe based on this odd roles, these odd roles that they're playing. And I think they're going to lose me there. And then suddenly Granger and Nico are going to be very interested. But uh, it is amazing how meticulous they are about putting them in these sitcom and how persuasive they are as sitcom characters. They truly are. I mean, that's a that's a credit Do to, to this guy. Do you did this to engage... The baby boomers who are watching it. I don't know. And, it's genius. And, but it's, it's, you know what? The, the Times actually did not give it a great review while acknowledging that it's kind of amazing. Uh, so I'm sympathetic to that. But the guy in particular, Paul Dettany, is extremely funny. He's playing a robot. And the character in Marvel is not funny. And he doesn't get to show much personality. Um, but uh, it kind of works for me. I, as a matter of fact, I'm more interested in that than, than Granger and Nico are. They're waiting for the spaceship right. to come down. And the guys to come out okay. in, in, their, in their uniforms. So anyway, that's it. But I want to say one other thing so, about... Well, well we well, also watched Harlots. Yeah, do you want to talk about that? That's up to you. <laughs> that's your call. You want it's, us to... it's a British series about 18th century um, brothels. Yeah. <laughs> and it's based on, actually, a book called The Covent Garden Ladies by Hallie Rubenhold. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's... Um, not really family friendly, in many ways, but uh, you know it. Uh, it has, it's historical, and uh, it, we'll see. We, we watched one episode. We'll, we'll see if we go well, back. Well, what's interesting is the Times had an article about um, what people are actually streaming, uh, and they measured the millions of hours of, of shows viewed. That's the way they measured it in two thousand twenty. And they rated uh, all kinds of things, acquired series, movies, whatever. And believe it or not, you know, we talk about things like The Queen's Gambit or Lupin or, or WandaVision. These fancy things which get a lot of press. They must be leading the streaming. Uh, they're not. The three leading streaming shows by a large number are old television shows, The Office, Grey's Anatomy, and Criminal Minds. And right behind them is NCIS. And that's what people <laughs> that's what people are watching. Now, it's a little bit skewed because there's a large inventory of those shows. So you right. can watch a lot of episodes and that piles up the numbers. But even so, it's kind well, of interesting well, that it's I'd traditional be television. In the demographics, so. uh, yeah, yeah, the demographics may yeah, be off. Because, but uh, uh, look, Schitt's Creek is on, on the list. Strangely, Longmire is on the list, which I was stunned by because I thought you and I were the only people in America watching that show. And you know, I'm getting the feeling that we just basically watch what everybody else watches. No, no, no. There, there are many shows. Like, every time we choose a new show that we think is new and, and different yeah. and out there, there are 19 articles yeah, but that's because in the New York Times that's saying just, everyone else is watching That's it. because people are listening to the podcast, Tams, and, and dialing in as a result. <laughs> that's all it means. So there you have it. Uh, all right. 
Um, so well, I you, point, you found an article for I did. me about. It's good thing uh, me and Nico are working for you. That's for I sure. know. What what am I doing? <laughs> um, a statue of Abraham Lincoln. That uh, the article's in the uh, Wall Street Journal, and the reason I didn't even notice it because I, I was just kind of skimming through the journal, seeing if there's anything interesting, yeah. and uh, they don't really show the picture of the sculpture. They show a picture of the siege on the Capitol right. from two weeks ago. Right. And, uh, you know, all these people with weapons. And there's Abraham it's, it's in, in the, the background. It's in the background. There's so the I just sculpture. went on by. I said, I don't know what that is, but, you know, it's right. not, you right. know. Uh, and uh, you pointed out that it's a, really a great story of this statue. The statue was actually sculpted by Vinnie Ream in 1871. She got the commission to do this when she was 18 years yeah, old. Yeah, this is crazy. She's in Washington. And, uh, you know, she was uh, studying with a, um, a sculptor of some renown. Uh, but nobody thought she had tremendous talent. It was really, uh, you know, um, I guess... One uh, person remarked that her real talent was in lobbying. Yeah, to get the commission. That's what it takes. She, uh, you know, she got she got a lot of slings and arrows. Yeah. Uh, actually, people accused her of, you know, uh, being a woman of ill repute. She was too attractive uh, to be a sculptor, and so on and so forth. Um, but um, it's. Um, as they say in the article, what she lacked in experience, she made up for in confidence, charm, connections, and enterprise. And she claims to have spent time with Abraham Lincoln, although uh, when uh, his wife, Mary Todd, sees the finished sculpture years later, later she says, you know, you say you're a friend of my husband's. You know, I I don't see your name anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I can't, uh, you you know, if you really knew him, you wouldn't have made him look like this. Um, well, there's so, a mixed, mixed reaction. Some people yeah. liked it quite a bit. Some people liked it quite a bit, but it wasn't, uh, again, it wasn't clear whether they liked her mm. or liked it. Yeah. Um, but in any case, uh, she finds a way to get this commission. Uh, she actually, uh, it's completed after he's been assassinated and uh, it's completed in rome mm -hmm. now it's not unusual for sculptors during this period to make a model perhaps a clay model mm -hmm. a plaster model whatever and then the um the actual workman will you know italian right. sculptors italian laborers basically will translate that model into marble. Mm -hmm. So it's not really clear. She she did do a lot of sculpture. It's not really clear whether she actually sculpted the marble in many cases. But she, she had works in the uh, Great uh, Columbian Exposition, the World's Fair mm -hmm. in uh, Chicago in 1893. Okay. Um, so she had quite a career and she was an interesting woman and uh, she was highly motivated. The statue, uh, you know, and as you say, got, gets a mixed reception, but it is set up in the Capitol. Although in about 1901 or so, uh, they're deciding to move it elsewhere. Yeah, um, it's not I a favorite. Yeah. And uh, in the process of doing that, um, 
the um, movers kind of break off uh, part of it, and that's considered a bad omen. So they just kind of push it back yeah. and decide they they're not going to move it. They said, oh, wait, no one's moving this. What are you talking about? And they just left the sculpture where it is. Yeah. They, yeah. Well, they got it repaired. <laughs> uh, so anyway, it, you know, it's uh, it's kind of an interesting story between Vinny, uh, the young woman, yeah. uh, and let's face it, even today there aren't that many uh, uh, female sculptors. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, remarkable in the um, 19th century. That she made that mark. Yeah. Well, it, it looks interesting. I don't, you know, I didn't get a real good look at it from that photo, but it looks interesting. Um, so here, there was an article in the uh, journal about uh, technology. Uh, our, and they're saying, they had an article, basically interesting tech coming up, coming, they'll be online soon, all kinds of things like rapid freezing machines to make instant frozen yogurt and uh, smart glasses, which you can look at the internet while you're wearing your glasses. But this one really struck me. It's called the Toto Wellness Toilet. All right? Right. At-home poop analysis is the future. Toto's... <laughs> well, you know, we're all about exactly. poop analysis. All right. Toto's wellness internet-connected toilet concept includes sensors uh, in the fixture's plumbing that can examine fecal matter and offer insights on health and nutrition, and even make suggestions for what you should eat. Like you're not eating enough fiber. No, but this is not going to tell you whether you have COVID. Uh, no, no, but they have an example of what the toilet telling a particular instant to use the toilet. Here's the message. Your diet seems unbalanced. The recommended recipe is salmon, chicken, avocado, salad. Tells you that right on the toilet. So uh, this is something... That sounds like a terrible salad. <laughs> Yeah, and also it's probably not the moment that you're going to receive that kind of message in a favorable way. And yet, <laughs> the, the, conceptually, you can see what's going on. I mean, it's going to tell you to stock up on beans and lentils or whatever based on your fecal matter. That's something to look forward to. It's a little bit different. Can't your mother just do that? <laughs> she doesn't have all the information. These, these, this, the toilet has information the mother doesn't have. <laughs> really? The future, dear. you got to be open to the future. Oh, my. Yeah. So I've been trying to clean up a little bit, yeah, uh, and uh, you know, kind of just sort through things, right, and uh, streamline mm-hmm. my vast accumulation, right? right. Okay, Maria Kondo. And it ter- thing, it right. turns out uh, that there are um, a couple new um, TV shows uh, coming online on the Legacy List with Mal- Matt Paxton. Uh, begins its second season on PBS, and then you have another show called Home Again with the Fords on HGTV. Now, Home Again with the Fords, it's just it's another one of those I don't know remodeling shows, mm-hmm. and the the gimmick here is people are going back home. Mm-hmm. People are you know we're, there was the exodus to the cities, and now people are going back mm-hmm. to you know wherever they came from. Right. Madison, Wisconsin, right. Pittsburgh, uh, whatever. And um, uh, this uh, couple of Fords will uh, help you uh, make that transition. Um, so that's fine. The one thing that struck me as interesting uh, 
that they remark on has to do with family heirlooms. And Lord knows we have a lot of family heirlooms. Mm. Mrs. Ford, Leanne Ford, the interior designer, who's the co-star of this Home Again show, says, my theory on the family heirloom is that our moms give it to us because they don't want it and they don't know what to do with it, so they keep passing it down. It's true. It's absolutely true. It's true to some extent. Yes. But not for everything. Yeah. Right? Okay. They keep passing it down so the so it, so it, the story can be told. I understand. I understand. But okay? you, know, you know what it, it's like Passover, all right? Yeah. The more we repeat it. We can't repeat these stories if we don't have the objects right. to conjure up. The more one tells the, the story, the more one is to be praised. But, right. But, but, all right. But, but, so forget about Mrs. Ford. She's got the wrong idea. I mean, you can't keep everything. I understand that. But what I'm reminded of is we watch Antiques Roadshow. And how many times is someone there and they're, they're, they're looking to have something evaluated and they're very excited. It's worth $5,000, $8,000, $10,000, $20,000. And they say, oh, that's great. I'm going to sell it, but now I can insure it. And I was like, okay, good. I mean, if, if you but here's the other if thing. If you they, love it, fine. If you love it, here's the other thing they always say. Yeah. The, the people come in with their object, yeah. and they give the family story. Yeah. And of course, the expert always says, "Well, that's actually not true <laughs> for this, this, and this reason." Yeah. Okay. So that's not you know the value is not what it's about. Right. right. Even the the um, verity of the story is it's not, not what, it's, what about. it's about. It's the story. It's the narrative, this the is, family narrative. It's the, narr- the family narrative. Yeah. And this other fellow, Matt Paxton, uh-huh. actually addresses that. He says, the things that matter are almost never financially valuable items. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, he talks about uh, saving some things. And, you know, when his own father passed away, he threw a bunch of things in a box and he was glad he saved it. Although he found one, you know, he, he found various things. He found the old uh, comb and brush his father used to use on his bald head and of course it was very uh, emotional but he also found a whittled stick wrapped up uh, in a piece of cloth or something and uh, wrapped in a newspaper Mm -hmm. and he has no idea what it means what it was and he's still gonna why he put he, it in he's the still box gonna hold on to it, apparently yeah. so i mean i myself had a, a very fun situation where i came across my grandfather's canceled checks mm-hmm. in a box and his mother's my great grandmother's canceled checks in a box and uh it's great it it tells those checks tell the stories of what they were doing, what they were reading, Mm -hmm. um, how much the Dodge Dart cost in 1965, uh, $2,400. Oh, really? Yeah. I also, didn't you have a repair of a 1948 car too? Well, yeah. And also he, also in the box were receipts from the local garage (laughs) and telling me just when the snow tires were put on the 48 Dodge. Uh, so, you know, it's just kind of fun. It's just connecting right. across the miles, mm-hmm. across the years yeah. uh, with uh, my relatives. There was a check written by my great-grandmother to my father when he was an infant in the yeah. 1920s. I guess, you know, money for the college fund right. or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, it's... Uh, so those discoveries are fun. Mm-hmm. We still have way too much stuff, so yeah. I don't know. Look, I don't mind keeping checks, but uh, furniture is, is going to be a little bit more of an issue. Uh, we'll have to see about that. 
Um, yeah. So here's something. Um, Claude Bowling died. So you may say, well, who is uh, Claude Bowling? Well, that's what Granger Nico said. Right. And uh, Claude Bowling um, is the jazz pianist and composer who, along with Jean-Pierre Rampal, recorded Suite for Flute and Jazz Piano in 1975. And that album was a tremendous success, one of the most popular albums of all time, in which it combined uh, jazz with uh, classical music. Jean-Pierre Rampal was a classical flautist, perhaps the most prominent at that time, and Claude Bowling was an up-and-coming jazz pianist. So we have that record. We have it. Everyone in 1975 had that record. Is that when we bought it in 1975? Yeah, and we or probably bought we it in 76. No, we bought it in 76. Later. We bought it. It was pretty much new. We, we were an item by then and uh, <laughs> in vinyl. And we played it. And uh, it, it turns out that it was on the classical billboard charts for 10 years, which uh, it's unheard of for it to be on any billboard chart for 10 years. The only uh, precedent at that time... For anything like that, it was a Pink Floyd album, Dark Side of the Moon. We played it a lot. Yeah. But then we, we haven't played it for Well, but I put it on for years. a few minutes before. And it sounded great. It sounded great. And, and I, I think Granger and Nico liked it too. Well, Nico in particular liked it. And it's a lot. there's a lot to like. I mean, it's a wonderful combination of jazz and classical music. And what's it called again? It's called Suite for Flute and Jazz Piano. I mean, I've heard other recordings with Claude Bowling. Uh, there was a PBS show in which he appeared. Uh, he played piano uh, with Oscar Peterson and with uh, Andre Previn. Uh, and it's just a jazz piano show, but it's, it's fantastic. He's a great uh, jazz pianist. But uh, this was unique. Uh, and and it was, it was, this album was ubiquitous. This is not an obscure piece of music. This is a very popular piece of music. And if you put it on, and I recommend people put it on, uh, you'll be rewarded. It's kind of a unique piece of music, and it was it was deservedly popular at the time. Okay, we're we're ending on a bittersweet note here. Uh, back to the Moynihan Train Hall. Okay, and a big article by uh, Michael Kimmelman, who writes, uh, you know, that's ar- architecture basically. He's the architecture critic for the New York Times. A grand step toward a better. City, the Moynihan Train Hall, the result of a post office's stunning transformation, is an uplifting gateway and a promise delivered. Right, um, and uh, in the midst of everything else, we needed this. He says, um, "No, the huge, lofty train hall with its soaring skylights doesn't magically re- resurrect the old Pennsylvania Station or extinguish." the raging dumpster fire that is the current one. It leaves all sorts of Herculean challenges and tasks around Penn Station unresolved, but it delivers, giving this city the uplifting gateway it deserves. Uh, And it is a dumpster fire, Penn Station, uh, as it is now. It's just uh, an awful, awful place. And we talked a little bit before already that um, this is kind of a spectacular Building and it's a wonderful combination of the old uh, sort of uh, iron structure 
the supporting structure for the glass ceiling over that overlooked mm-hmm. the sorting room, the big male sorting room mm-hmm. of this extraordinary, um, you know, what you might call neoclassical uh, post office building that was meant as kind of a um, what do you call it? a pendant and answer a you know um, to the Penn Station, which yeah, was, it was a couple it, blocks it away. It was constructed at the same time, and it was sort of a twin building. And the um, train tracks yeah. from Penn Station go actually go underneath, underneath there. Right. So it was a great idea yeah. to kind of, uh, as we know, uh, the old Penn Station was torn down in the 60s, and we've never forgiven anybody for doing that. Um, it was a tremendous loss. And, uh, oh, how does he put it? He puts it... Uh, in a terrific way. Um, they raised the original site in 1963 by the 60s Gilded Age optimism and New York's leaping ambition at the start of the century had succumbed to a mean, cramped vision of the city and its prospects, which the new subterranean Penn Station exactly embodied. Yeah, that's a, okay. that's a little dramatic for me, but fine. Uh <laughs> But in any event, you, well, it, you know, I mean, that moment for, for building these extraordinary yeah. um, palaces uh, to adorn the city had passed. Sure. Okay. So uh, anyway, it was a pet um, project of Moynihan, uh, Senator Pat Moynihan, um, that he introduced years ago, 30 years ago. And uh, so finally, um, you know, it seemed like a crazy project taking the, the old... Um, post office and making it into a train station, but it's happened, and partly because it was espoused by Cuomo, yeah. uh, Andrew Cuomo, um, yeah, governor look, of New York State. We're not going to get into a debate about it. The only question is, it worth the money? But 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 you have a story about the guy who brought it to fruition. Well, the re- one of the reason it is so magnificent. Yeah. many people say is due to Michael Evans, okay? He was president of the Moynihan Station Development Corporation and died at the age of 40 in March, okay? Evans, the team at Skidmore Owens uh, Owens and Merrill, and uh, the engineering firm Schleich-Bergerman have gifted the city with this light-filled steel glass and Tennessee marble cathedral. Anyway... Evans was an interesting guy, mm-hmm. uh, quite an interesting guy. He was born in Columbia. His family moved to Texas. He went to college at Swarthmore. Mm-hmm. Okay. He also went to school, um, graduate school in Australia mm-hmm. and eventually in Oxford, uh, England as well. He had various political jobs. He was actually um, the uh, whoa, the special assistant for infrastructure and economic development for under David Patterson, mm-hmm. uh, governor governor of New York. Um, and some some way or another, he ended up. On this project, okay. Right. At the very beginning, he's uh, you know in the old Postmaster General's office suite 
with the wood paneling. They don't even have working toilets in the building anymore. It's kind of derelict. He ushers all this through with incredible detail, okay? Mm-hmm. The, uh, the original Penn Station was designed, uh, inspired by the baths of Caracalla. He actually went to Italy to look at the Baths of Caracol on his own dime. Really? All right. He went, uh, he, you know, he personally went to Germany to see the glass being made uh, for the ceilings. I mean, meticulous detail. Um, And uh, it took a toll. I mean, near the end uh, of this project, at a certain point, um, so Cuomo takes it on. Mm -hmm. All right. And the decision, they break ground on 2017. The decision is made, this needs to be done by 2020. Mm -hmm. And so there's tremendous pressure to get this finished, okay? And to make it extraordinary. And the ante gets upped and upped and upped. What if we add this? Mm -hmm. And there are overruns by millions of dollars. And... He is very stressed out. In the end, uh, in March, he actually commits suicide. Yeah, that's brutal. Um, so, and he never sees it completed. He never sees it completed. He never sees. Uh, he never hears the great accolades. Um, and uh, so, uh, what a sad story! Yeah. What a, a sad, sad story! And uh, I hope this building continues to be a success, just uh, to honor his memory. Yeah, that is a sad story. So. Okay, that's all we have uh, until next week. Uh, this right, is, we'll be back again. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuha. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. See you then. Thank you.